Hello, this is The Perfect Puzzle. I'd like to welcome you, or if you're coming back for another session, uh, welcome back. Start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can learn your word and that we can apply it to our lives, Lord. We ask you, Father, to take what we learn here today and incorporate it into our lives, into our body, soul, mind, spirit that we might continue growing and living as Christians and as your children and spreading your gospel to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. We're record I'm recording this. It's a season of Lent. It, this Sunday is actually the uh, fourth Sunday of Lent. Uh, so we're going to get into this. And in keeping with that, uh, we're going to do a study that I've titled God's Love Nailed to a Tree. You know, one of the most remarkable recent works of religious art is Salvador Dali's painting, Christ of St. John of the Cross. When it was displayed in the National Gallery in London in 2000, 50,000 people lined up to see it. A press report at the time described its impact this way. Men entering the room where the picture is hung instinctively take off their hats. Crowds of chattering, high-spirited school children are hushed into odd silence when they see it. Now, you can go see it today. It's in Glasgow, Scotland, in the Glasgow, Scotland Art Gallery. That's where it usually hangs. The difference in, in this painting, unlike most picturings of the cross where it's viewed from the ground level, in Dolly's painting, the cross is viewed from above, as if one were viewing it from heaven, from God's perspective. The cross in the picture is massive. It looms over the whole earth beneath it. The figure on the cross is young and strong. He seems to be holding back the darkness that's surrounding him. In the foreground, the earth, the sky, and the sea are illuminated by the light streaming forth from the cross. Now the whole world is viewed from the cross and how different it looks from that perspective. You know, the cross truly is at the very heart of everything distinctively Christian. That's why it's the primary identifying sign, the chief visual symbol of the Christian faith. You know, when we talk to sinners, uh, when we speak of our Christianity, or we talk to uh, what I call heathens, uh, usually we, we proclaim only one dimension of the cross. To a sinner, we say, well, Christ died to save us from our sins. But that's not enough. You know, like the New Testament writers we need to communicate its many-splendored message. You know, drawing from their ancient Jewish and Greco-Roman context, the, the New Testament writers used a, a variety of images and metaphors to convey the significance of Christ's death. In sorting out the images that they presented, I, you know, they generally revolve around the five spheres of public life. There's the court of law, which is justification. The world of commerce, redemption, personal relationships, reconciliation, worship, which is sacrifice, and the battleground, which is the tri uh, God's eventual triumph o over evil. Each sheds light on a different consequence of sin that the cross uh, addresses. In the American church, our culture in general, we become so accustomed to seeing crosses on church buildings and sanctuaries, we wear them on chains, 
carry them in processions. You know, it's virtually impossible for us today in the 21st century to, to grasp the utter horror the very mention of crucifixion provoked in the ancient world. You know, we go into a jewelry store. Do you sell gold crosses? A customer inquires at the jewelry section of a uh, jewelry store. I mean, of, of a department store. Well, the clerk asks, what, would, what kind do you want? As she, you know, she pulls out one of the trays. You want a plain one or you want one that has a little man on it? You see, for us, the cross is an endearing, it's often sentimental, religious symbol, and it evokes positive feelings. And a lot of times, maybe it doesn't provoke any feelings at all. Now, it was not that way when the apostles proclaimed the message of the cross. It was not a religious symbol. The cross was shocking, revolting, and offensive. A disgusting, irreligious symbol if there ever was one in the history of the world. You know, this, the uh, film by Mel Gibson, they, you probably saw it, The Passion of the Christ, did not convey the full horror of crucifixion to a modern audience. We don't understand it because we've never seen anything like it. And that situation was very different in New Testament times. Everyone knew what it looked like, what it smelled like, and what it sounded like. It was the horrific sight of a completely naked men in agony. The smell and sight of their bodily functions taking place in full view of everyone. The sounds of their groans and labored breathing could go on for hours, in some cases for days. And perhaps worst of all is the fact that no one cared. You know, we tend to associate the horror of crucifixion with agonizing physical pain, which Mel Gibson so vividly showed us in his film. And that's a major dimension, and it's no accident that our English word excruciating is derived from the Latin word for cross, crux, C-R-U-X. Yet despite the physical agony, people in Roman times dreaded the shame associated with crucifixion even more. Crucifixion was reserved for the dregs of, of society, outcasts, slaves, and common criminals. So no one, so one, a person who was crucified was defined as a miserable, wretched being that didn't deserve to exist. It was not legal to crucify a Roman citizen. By pinning them up like insects on a cross, crucifixion was deliberately intended to display and humiliate its victims. And it was always carried out in public at a prominent place, like a crossroads, an outdoor theater, or on top of a hill. Crucifixion was a spectacle event, the grisly form of entertainment where passers-by jeered and heaped ridicule upon the victim. Now, the public mockery of Jesus during his crucifixion, uh, depicted in Mark chapter 15, verses 29 through 32, was typical. And the shame of the crucified person was compounded by their nakedness, as well as the fact they were often denied burial and became food for vultures and other scavengers. It was deliberately designed to be loathsome, vulgar, revolting, and obscene. That's why, although it was common in Roman times, it's it was rarely mentioned in cultured, literary, or social settings from that time. 
Crux was a four-letter word that was not used in polite company. Cicero, one of Rome's greatest philosophers, said that no respectable person should ever have to hear that word spoken. And the hideous shame associated with crucifixion was the main reason why the message of the cross seemed ludicrous to its original hearers. As Paul put it, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, When we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. To proclaim that someone was hanged on the tree of shame was also the savior of the world or the long-awaited Messiah was bizarre, disgusting, it was considered to be sheer madness. Now the early Christian preaching of the cross was like a modern business or a corporation choosing a hangman's noose or lynching tree or firing squad, gas chamber or electric chair as its logo. I don't think there's an advertising agency anywhere that would advise advise you to choose an instrument of, of execution as a recognition symbol for your organization. You know, only an organization determined to fail as quickly and spectacularly as possible would be mad enough to choose such a symbol. Yet by making it the centerpiece of their proclamation, that's exactly what the early Christians did. As Paul reminded the Corinthians, when I first came to you, I didn't use lofty words and brilliant ideas to tell you God's message, for I decided to concentrate only on Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Though it seemed strange and outlandish, they were convinced it was the supreme demonstration of the power and wisdom of God. Now, learning the scandal of the cross can help you to understand how God works to accomplish his redemptive purposes in the world. As the prophet declared in Isaiah uh, chapter 55, verse 8, My thoughts are completely different from yours, and my ways are beyond anything you could imagine. Now, the cross reveals that God's upside-down kingdom can be downright offensive to us. God uses what the world considers despicable and weak to manifest his power. Now what does that say about our desiring strength as the world counts strength? Or our attempts to downplay or soften the offense of the cross? If you were to ask a group of Christians to explain why Jesus had to die on the cross, they would no doubt respond, well, to save us from our sins. You know, most Christians know there's a close connection between the cross and human sin, and it's firmly rooted in the New Testament. Uh, references are 1 Corinthians 15.3, Hebrews 9.26, 1 Peter 3.18, 1 John 1.7, Revelation 1.5. But, you know, if, if you press the Christian further, if you ask, why was his death necessary to accomplish the forgiveness of our sins? Couldn't God have dealt with it some other way? How does the cross undo the problem of sin? You ask those questions of a Christian, the majority would be unable to give you a coherent, satisfying answer. You know, they can connect the cross with the problem of sin or why it provides, but they aren't sure how or why it provides the solution. And the reason is quite simple. If you're going to understand the antidote, you must first understand the poison. Most Christians have a difficult time explaining why the death of Christ is the proper antidote for the poison, poison of sin because they never really come to grips with the poison. 
They know the right answer. Christ died for our sins. But when they speak it, the answer seems superficial, hollow, trite, and unconvincing. And given the loss of the general awareness of sin in American culture over the past 75 years, you couple that with the shift to a postmodern relativism, the disconnect between the solution and the problem only grows larger. You know, the cross is the answer to the problem of sin, but what do we do when very few people understand that understand what the problem is, or even seem bothered by it? As we proclaim the biblical message to a lost world that Christ died for our sins, that's the dilemma we face. Let me suggest that in helping people come to grips with the reality and nature of sin, let's let the cross define the poison. To properly understand both the poison and the antidote, the best thing we can do is invite people to stand at the foot of the cross. Like nothing else, the cross itself reveals, in Anselm's frame, phrase, what a heavy weight sin is. And like nothing else, the Christ reveals what God himself has done to remove the weight. Because at the cross we see Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, being mocked, tortured, and murdered by the sons and daughters of men. We see humanity defiantly turned against God, the creature, in all of its prideful arrogance, seeking to annihilate the Creator. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us to think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. That's Hebrews 12.3, as he endured the cross. Here, humanity's deep-seated, burning hostility toward God is fully exposed. Our hatred is so intense, we would kill God if we could. And our determination to be autonomous and independent to be our own gods, we would go so far as to get rid of God so we can take his place. You know, we don't see sinners in the hands of an angry God like Jonathan Edwards put it in his famous 18th century sermon, but God in the hands of angry sinners. You know, the cross reveals how hell-bent we are and how heinous and horrible sin is. You know, the Bible portrays sin in a variety of ways, falling short of God's standard, deliberately crossing a boundary, twistedness, perversity, weakness, or infirmity. The cross, however, gets to the heart of the matter. Because sin is flat-out rebellion, sure defiance, our willful declaration of independence from God. It's not merely falling short of an established, of an established standard. You know, we'd like to get rid of the one who established the standard in the first place. Jeremiah maintained in Jeremiah 17.9 that the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? The cross shows us how bad it is. Here our true colors are exposed and our malignant nature is unmasked. The cross illustrates most vividly the rebellion and estrangement that separates human creatures from their maker, the subjects from their king, by exposing so concretely the contrast between divine humility and human pride. It's in the cross of Jesus that the truth about us is smoked out. We're un we are unmasked and stripped bare. It's at the cross that we are convicted of the fact that we treat truth as blasphemy, we mock the king as an impostor. We deliver the son of the living God up to death and the devil. And we are exposed as idolaters and fools, as hypocritical enemies of peace, as violent allies of the dark. 
And how does God respond to such deliberate, deep-seated wickedness? Does God simply ignore or excuse it? Does God say, listen, oh, it doesn't matter. You'd like to annihilate me, but don't worry about it. We'll just pretend it never happened. That's absolutely not what God does. The cross reveals that God takes sin much too seriously to ignore it, to ca- or casually forgive it, or simply speak it away. Consider what Jesus, the Son, the one who, according to Paul, knew no sin but was made sin for us, Second Corinthians 5.21, and who, according to Peter, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24. He experienced What he experienced on the cross in his relationship to God the Father is a further revelation of the seriousness of sin. First of all, Jesus experienced separation from God as seen when he cried out in agony, quoting from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now some maintain this this cry was only an expression of human emotion. It's a cry of a desperate man who in this extreme situation felt God forsaken, although he actually wasn't. But we know that's not true. As he hung on the cross, the incarnate Son, who had never known a moment's separation from the Father, experienced separation from the Father. For as one fully identified with sin, he knew the separation the alienation from God, which is the inevitable consequence of sin. On the cross, Jesus also experienced God's wrath. And unfortunately, the wrath of God is often misconceived and misunderstood. It is not some capricious, indiscriminate, irrational divine fury. It's God's pure, intense revulsion to evil in all its forms and his vigorous opposition to it. Divine wrath and divine love are often portrayed as opposites. But if they're viewed rightly, God's wrath is an expression of God's holy love. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because he is love. You know, when we paddle a canoe in the direction the stream is flowing, we experience the current as a blessing. But when we paddle against a stream, we experience that same current as resistance. Similarly, we we experience God's holy love as wrathful when we turn away from God and stand in opposition to him. You know, on the cross, Jesus became sin for us and stood in our place. He felt God's vigorous opposition, God's intense revulsion of sin, He experienced the wrathful love of God. And finally on the cross, Jesus also experienced the judgment of God. The religious leaders had challenged him to come down from the cross in Matthew 27. Save yourself, they scoffed. Then we'll believe you. But Jesus didn't come down. He didn't try to save himself. Jesus died on the cross. And by dying, Jesus experienced the judgment of God upon sin. He paid sin's wages, Romans 6.23. He tasted death and drank the cup of divine judgment. He descended to the place of the dead where all who sin are destined to go. 
you know, the cross tells us how seriously God takes our sin. God doesn't excuse it or turn and look the other way. He acknowledges it for what it is. It separates us from God, evokes divine wrath, places us under divine judgment. In an age that wants to ignore the problem of sin, deny its consequences, and forget what a heavyweight sin is, we need to preach the cross to a lost and dying world in keeping with the true nature and extreme gravity of sin. But not only does the cross graphically reveal sin, it also reveals the incredible costliness of what God has done to atone for it. Centuries before Calvary, the prophet Isaiah told how God would do it. Isaiah 53.6 The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Because of his love for us, God has chosen not to allow the punishment for our sin to fall on us, nor on some innocent third party. Rather, on the cross, Jesus chooses to let it fall on himself. You know, there's a painting of the crucifixion hanging in an Italian church. At first glance, it looks like most other paintings of the crucifixion. But if you get closer and you examine it closely, begin to perceive there's a vast and shadowy figure behind the figure of Jesus. It's God. The nail that pierces the hand of Jesus goes through the hand of God. The spear thrust into the side of Jesus goes through into the side of God. You know, the artist of that painting discerned correctly. God, in the person of his Son, took the consequences of our sin into himself. He endured the separation. He carried his own wrath. He bore the judgment, and at what infinite cost to himself. Now, a while ago I spoke of Jesus' cry of dereliction from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he had struggled with in, in Gethsemane, the cup he did not want to drink, that he had implored his father to save him from, had at last come upon him on the cross. The father, whose eyes are too pure to look on sin, forsook the son who had become sin for us. And just as the sun was hid from view in the deep darkness at Golgotha, so he hid his face from his son. You know, centuries before, the prophet Amos had described the scene. And that day, says the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it is still day. I will turn your celebrations into times of mourning, as if your only son had died. How very bitter that day will be. That's Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. This was the real cross in Jesus' crucifixion. He was forsaken by the God who he knew to be his father and whose son he knew himself to be. He surrendered up his sonship and allowed himself to become fatherless. But consider too what that meant for the father. If the son loses his sonship, that means that the father loses his fatherhood too. The fatherlessness of the son also means the sonlessness of the father. 
So in the deep darkness of Golgotha, we see God forsaken by God. What Martin Luther described as God striving with God. You know, the love that binds a father and a son becomes in that moment a dividing curse. God is divided from God. God strives with God as holy love and sin meet. And as a result, the infinite love of the Father for the Son is transformed into infinite pain over the sacrifice of the Son. Likewise, the infinite love of the Son for the Father turns into infinite suffering over his separation from the Father. The cross reveals that in making atonement for sin, God doesn't ignore it, excuse it, or deal with it externally. Instead, God bears it himself in the person of his Son. And at such an incredible cost, what we see on the cross is a radical, a drastic, a passionate, and absolute final acceptance of the terrible situation and an absorption by the very, by very God himself of the fatal de- disease of sin so as to neutralize it effectively. And we'll wrap this up next time. Thank you for listening. This has been the perfect puzzle. Father, I ask that you allow this message to be received in the love and intent that it was delivered. Lord, I ask you to help your children as they go through these days of Lent and the rest of the days of their lives to help them come to understand more of your love and what you did and what your son did on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So until next time, I will see you then.